market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. That's right, another special Sunday mailbag edition. It is, of course, not Sunday when we're recording this. It's also no longer that special, at least as in unusual. It is still special, though, because we get a chance to answer your questions. And the we, of course, that I'm talking about is myself. I'm Scott Phillips. And my esteemed colleague, Dr. Anirban Mahanti, is also joining me, as he always does. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. I'm, I'm glad I'm esteemed today. You're all, you're, you're, I may not always say you're, you're always esteemed to me, mate. You're what you're I, 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 I'm just I'm just happy about the fact that I'm I'm, I'm esteemed on air today, so that's great. <laughs> that's got to be good, right? It's got to be good. Now, of course, it's not Sunday; it's Thursday. We say this every week, but um, I, I make the point a because we never want to mislead our listeners, but also because there's so much that can happen. Mate, quite honestly, between, between Thursday morning and Sunday afternoon, goodness knows what's happened in the world of politics, economics, uh, social policy, health policy. Um, so we are hoping that Sunday finds you well. Um, hopefully, we haven't got to jump in the studio and re-record something on. Saturday afternoon because everything's gone to hell in a handbasket or maybe gone through the roof, who knows. Um, but, you know, things are... Uh, what, where do you think, how are things, mate? If you, if you had to kind of describe where we're at financially, economically, stock market-wise, health-wise, give, give me a couple of words to describe. How, how, where, how are we? Where are we sitting? How are things? Well, you know, they're better than they were like a couple of months back, right? I mean, I, I think that's, you know, as I, as, I, as I like saying, I mean, you know, it depends on what reference scale. Are we as good as we were <laughs> last year at this time? No. As we, you know, are we as good as, are we significantly better than we were in March or February or even January? I think we are. Uh, even though the January numbers might be better than the numbers right now, I think we are better off than January uh, mm. versus now. So, yeah, like I mean, I continue and things, things, stuff, um, stuff is improving. So that's good. There you go. Improving. That's a good word. All right, mate. We got a truckload of mailbag, which is awesome. I will give the socials a little bit later on, uh, but we will get them up. Before I do, I want to give our listeners a chance to join me at Motley Fool Share Advisor. Share Advisor is our flagship service. It's been going since December 2011. I've been in charge since about April 2012. And over that time, we've been able to bring our members a heap of winners and the occasional loser, by the way. We're not going to gild the lily here. Uh, but our scorecard is meaningfully positive and meaningfully market beating over that length of time. We're looking for the best mid-large cap growth, generally speaking. We aren't... um we aren't uh, averse to taking the occasional value play or something that might possibly, hopefully, turn around. But generally speaking, mid-large cap growth is kind of where we tend to find ourselves. Uh, I want to say we, myself and Andrew Leggett, our colleague, uh, work on Motley Fool Share Advisor. If you want to join Share Advisor, I think you should, go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. That's fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Come and get a special deal. Come and join us at Share Advisor. Come and say g'day. We bring you a monthly ASX and a monthly US recommendation. Our best buys now, regular commentaries, all the good stuff that you'd expect from The Motley Fool for a very, very low price. Not quite as cheap as Doc Service, but I'm not advertising his this week. I'm advertising mine. Uh, so Share Advisor, fool.com.au, SA podcast. Still stupidly cheap. Still remarkably just, yeah, cheap's the only word I can think of on a, on a, particularly on a weekly basis, cup of coffee a week type stuff. Um, really, really cheap. And I think if past performance is some indication, of course, there's no guarantee, but if it's some indication, we intend to keep bringing you market-beating stock ideas that will make you money over time. And on average, we'll have our losers and our winners, of course, as all stock pickers do. But so far, so good. We're doing a, a pretty good job, I think, of beating the market. And I'm sure we will do our level best to continue to do that well into the future. SA podcast. All right, Doc, let's get into the mailbag. Let's dive deep, mate. I've got pages and pages and pages of it here. We're not going to get through it all. 
which is okay because we've got more mailbag episodes coming up. But let's start with this one from Simon. Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Thank you, mate. You really provide a great blend of sound investment advice in a fun way. I listen every week. Good man. Here's a really good question, Doc. The first couple this week are going to be about the way the market works, which is kind of cool. I like these questions because they're a bit different and they hopefully are things that other people might have wondered. Simon says, are you able to explain what happens with share prices after the market closes? As an example, I recently watched CSL drop to about $282 when the market closed at 4pm, according to my Comsec account, but was surprised to find that 10 minutes later, the closing price was recorded as $276. Millions of orders had been processed, in air quotes, after the bell. How can this be? Is it institutions or ETFs? Is it fair? Can investors make use of this aftermarket settlement? For example, putting in an ambit buy or sell order toward the end of the day. Appreciate any advice you pros can offer. Full on, Simon. All right, Doc, what happens once the doors slam shut at four o'clock seating time every day? Well, yeah, I mean, technically, they should, you know, towards the end, they have some, uh, uh, they have a period of time to, I guess, settle the last few trades. Yeah. But um, you could have, uh, you could have like block trades happen outside mm-hmm. of of these uh, these hours, right? And outside these hours, yeah. other than block trades, nothing really happens. So... I, you know, I don't know. I don't pay that much attention to what happens towards the end of the day and things like that in terms of pricing action, uh, largely because the market is essentially closed. So it doesn't really matter. At least I can't do anything about it. <laughs> exactly. So the ASX calls it their closing price auction. Um, so here's, here's the way they describe it, Simon. At four, between 4 and 4.10 p.m., it's the pre-CSPA. In other words, the market's closed. They haven't quite done the, the closing auction yet. Between 4.10 and 4.12 they have the closing single price auction. Now, the idea of that is supposed to be basically working out the balance of the buy and sell orders to work out what a reasonable closing price should be. Sometimes it's down, sometimes it's up. So to your point, to your point, well, you saw CSL fall, it could well have gone the other way in that same scenario. And it is literally an auction of the open orders that are left and anyone who wants to make the settlement. It's a largely administrative process. Like most things on the ASX, I would absolutely discourage you from worrying about it because A, as Doc says, you can't change it. Um, B, it just doesn't matter. And frankly, if you know what price you want to buy your shares, if you wanted to buy shares at 275, you didn't get a chance. If you want to buy them at 280, I guess you could have put a limit order in. Um, but the reality is that you know it's a relatively small move in the overall scheme of things and you don't have to play or try and play that particular game. It's, a, it's an administrative computerized process that happens. Um, there is nothing untoward about it and it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't, you know, it sometimes goes up, sometimes it goes down. In fact, during the depths of the pandemic, we actually saw some, was it, I want to say 4%, Doc, was that right on one day? We saw the market jump by four percentage points on in one particular closing price auction. Do I remember that correctly? I'm, I'm not sure. It, it could have. I mean, We've had some very big moves, yeah. Yeah, look, in any case, so look, Simon, I get get it, you know, it's it's tempting to kind of want to know what's going on and wonder whether people are screwing us over. Um, It goes both ways. On average, I'd be very, very surprised if there's a net move in either direction. So it's equivalent, assume it's the equivalent of the market being open for an extra two minutes, only trading the limit orders that are put in the system if someone wants to buy or sell at that price. Um, That's the best way to, to think about it. All right, let's move on to another question from Paul this time, another market kind of process how things work question is i've got another question for the amazing podcast whenever you can fit it in thanks paul appreciate the compliment and today's the day i've heard a bit about so-called robo trading and algorithmic trading and i sort of understand the idea perhaps you could explain a little more about it and how it affects our markets for better or worse thanks again from paul 
Doc, do you want first go at this or do you want me to grab this one? Well, look, I mean, algorithmic trading is basically just computers trading based on, you know, it could be based on quantitative signals, qualitative signals. You know, they could be mm. processing signals from uh, things like Twitter, newspapers, to just looking at price movements, momentum, depth, mm. volume, and you know, where derivatives are available, derivatives to decide how they're going to trade. And they, you know, they tend to move in and out of things very quickly. Mm. So, I mean, that's really algorithmic trading. It has many shapes and forms, right? From, you know, trading within seconds, minutes, day trading too, including long-term holdings based on, you know, fundamentals and um, and non-fundamentals, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so yeah, look, I think, okay, so let's call it computerized trading more broadly. It takes many forms, as you say, Doc. There's the old high-frequency trading. In the US, they can actually pay, this is uh, terrible, you can actually pay an exchange to get access to the order flow before the orders actually hit the market, which I still don't understand how the lawmakers lay happen, other than maybe it's the land of the free, and you know, if you've got more money, you get to make the rules. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Here, you can't do that, which is wonderful for individual investors, but there are still... Computerized trading, as Doc said, that's designed to take advantage of what they see as either, um, as you say, signals or inefficiencies in the market. You'll see lots of orders go through for one, two, or three shares at a time. Often there are computer programs that are out there basically fishing. You put a, you put an order in for what, literally one share because they can do it for. They don't have to pay Comsec for the brokerage, so they can do it. You know, one or two shares at a time. Um, and you can go fishing and see who's there, who wants to buy or sell at a given price. Now, in the wrong hands, it can very, very, very slightly change the buy or sell price for the shares you're offering. Because if you say, look, I'll sell at the market price, um, that means you get whatever price is being offered at the time. And there is a lot of computerized trading that basically trying to take advantage of that. So if you put a market order in and it's slightly higher or slightly lower, depending on whether you're buying or selling, often the computers will try and find that order and then adjust their price up or down to basically try and take some of that arbitrage out. It's super, super, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really, you know, low, per transaction, really, really, really low returns in terms of cents per share or fractions of a cent per share often. But done enough times by, you know, fast enough computers with very, very low trading costs, it can make some money for some people. So that's what it's there. I... In the US, it affects the markets more than here. Um, but even still here, if you're using a market order, you can you will get a worse price than if there was no computerized trading, just straight out. Because otherwise, if the computer wasn't there, you couldn't it wouldn't happen. So they are adding, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of the gap between the buy and sell price. They're effectively um, closing that gap by taking some of the profit away. So that does cost the rest of us a little bit of money. Uh, that being said, it only really hurts you if you're playing the game there by their rules, right? If I know I want to buy Woolies shares at 40 and not a cent more, it doesn't matter what the computers do, I get the price I'm prepared to pay. If I want to sell my Woolies shares at $42, not a cent less, again, whether there's computers trading or not, as long as I get offered the price and take the price I want, it doesn't need to affect me. So if you're trying to day trade, if you're trying to be clever with the computers, well, I know you're not Paul, by the way, but for everyone else listening, um, yeah, good luck to you. If, you. if you want to play that game, knock yourself out. I don't know about you, Doc. I don't like playing games where I have a structural disadvantage. And and for me, if you, you know, yes, they're, they're absolutely taking money away from regular retail investors. Otherwise, I might get a half a cent more, you might get half a cent less or vice versa. Um, so, you know, there is some profit that one of us would have pocketed that's now going to a third party, the computer. And so to some degree, it is a bastardization of the market in my personal view. 
but it doesn't need to hurt you or me as an investor if we're only ever transacting at prices we otherwise want to or are prepared to pay. More importantly over time, if we're getting 10% a year on average across the market and we hold our shares and we're long-term investors and we do it for decades, the fact that computers take a half percent here and half percent there is even, even less important and less impactful. So I would happily get rid of them. I'd happily ban them tomorrow given my druthers. I do a lot of things given the choice, uh, but it actually doesn't need to impact or hurt us if we don't if we don't play their game their way. But it actually, you know, it is it is a net reduction of value for the other market participants because they're there. Any more on that, Doc, before we move on? No, I have nothing to add. I think you, you summarised it nicely. Thank you, sir. Question now from Firefly. Hi, long-term listener, first-time question asker. I'm wondering if you could explain the anatomy of the change in share price of a company during a capital raising. I've noticed it seems to go something like trading halt, then a big increase in the share price on return to trading. The share price declines during the open period of the share price plan, share purchase plan, sometimes even below the price, then sometimes an increase and sometimes a decrease following the issue of new shares. Is there rhyme or reason to this volatility during a capital raising? If so, what are the underlying drivers of the gains and losses? Talk. Do you want to start? Oh, I can start. Like I mean, you know, um, Firefly has already got the answer there. I mean, you know, the, the answer really is volatility, um, <laughs> and the mar- the market reacting to, I guess, a placement plan. Often, what happens really is that you know it's it's all sentiment in some sense. If the market believes in aggregate that the share placement is is a good placement, it's going to be you know it's going to be good use of capital. The capital is going to deliver good returns. Then, typically, the shares will actually go up. Um, you know, like I mean, new shares are being printed, but you know the company has effectively got more cash now. So I mean, you know, um, you know there's a little bit of give and a little bit of take there. Uh, when the market is skeptical or is unsure of what's going on, then you know all these things happen where um, you know market maybe is not sure whether the share placement plan is going to be taken up in full by retail members and it's going to be a shortfall and then what's going to happen. So when there's all those uncertainties, then you see a lot more volatility. So I mean, again, everybody's taking a, a guess uh, here. You know what's going to happen with the new capital that's being raised, and um, you know what is that equity placement going to do? So yeah, I think that's that's really it. I mean, you know, again, a well, typically one that the market likes tends to go up or at least not fall sub- sub- substantially. The one the market is skeptical about tends to be volatile. Yeah, good, good point, man. I'll add a couple of thoughts just to, to add some flavour to Doc's comments. So he's bang on as always. Um, it kind of depends on why the money is being raised and what the market expected, and as Doc said, how the market expects to use it. I've, I've certainly, in a, in, a, in a perfect world, what should actually happen is um, the, the the value of the company, as Doc says, more cash is added, but generally speaking, companies are valued more than their cash balance. So if you're adding shares, you should see the share price fall because you've got the same amount of earnings, maybe a little bit more if they use the cash well, as Doc says, but generally speaking. And in most cases, you see a $10 share price, a $9 capital raising, the shares should fall to $9 something, right? Because you've got simply more more shares, the same amount of profit, or maybe even a little bit profit if they use the business well, the money well. It should, there is this thing called the theoretical X rights price. Um, and that basically calculates, you know, what, what it should be worth based on the change. In some circumstances, it falls further than that because the market's freaked out. In some cases, the market is either already valuing the company so cheaply. So during the during the pandemic, for example, uh, we saw Webjet and Flight Centre both jump massively after their capital raisings because the market was pricing in a reasonable chance of bankruptcy. 
And so the fact they raised more capital at any price was was positive enough to say, oh, thank God, we're not going to lose all our money now. And the discount that was there because of the potential bankruptcy kind of goes away. And so you see a big jump in the price in that case, for example. And there are, as Doc says, depending on the circumstances, there is absolutely a rhyme and reason for each one, but there's no single one you can put across them all. <laughs> um, during, during the raising or du- during that period, again, you don't tend to necessarily see the same direction all the time. Um, again, in theory, if everyone was efficient in the market, well, it's supposed to do, you should see the price gravitate towards that theoretical X rights price, the TERP price you'll see it referred to as, um, but it doesn't always happen. So um, I've, seen, I've seen both. I've seen both scenarios. It can also just be straight sentiment, right? Again, on the day of, oh, wow, thank God they're raising some capital. That's wonderful. Let's all buy our shares. And the next day you think, oh, yeah, okay, but they're raising some Maybe that's not so great. And so you've got the usual sentiment um, that impacts and maybe the first reaction can be an overreaction in either direction. Any more on that, Doc? No, I think that covers it. Beautiful. One from Tommy Mace has got another mailbag question for you guys. Any thoughts on the pros and cons of Spaceship Super? I'm currently with Combank Super, growth with pretty good annualised returns, but Spaceship looks like what Super would be if Tom and David Gardner restructured it, investing in amazing, booming growth companies with way more percentage than usual growth in US stocks. Again, it's only been around since 2017, it seems, but if Spaceship Super... uh, but is Spaceship Super the super that fools should be getting amongst it with? Higher fees, but surely higher compounded gains. They seem like a good idea. What do you know about Spaceship Super, mate? Actually, I don't know much, so I'm going to say uh, you should take it. <laughs> <laughs> so Spaceship was originally out in 2017, and Tommy, it's been one of those, you know, VCs and private equity and small companies are supposed to pivot, right? Spaceship was supposed to be ironically what... It's probably a few years early. So Stake is a business that we've dealt with a bit in the past. They offer Australians access to US brokerage for effectively nothing because they make money on the foreign exchange, although they've now got subscription fees and there's other things they do. But basically it came along, what, probably a year and a half ago, Doc, maybe even less, um, and kind of changed, you know, plenty of Australians are signing up to access the US markets. Spaceship tried to do that about three years earlier and for whatever combination of reasons, Australians weren't ready for it. And so this big thing that was supposed to be the big solution, the big, the big future, they're going to invest in funds and give access to US markets, all that kind of stuff, didn't really work as much as they'd wanted it to. Big, big, huge amounts of... Remember the paper in the AFR? There was massive amounts of PR about it. It was the next big thing. Never quite got there. And so they kind of pivoted to superannuation, hoping to be able to get people to transfer some of their super across. I'm not a massive fan, Tommy, of anything that charges high fees. And I will include Spaceship Super there as part of that group, not without picking it individually. I think it's necessarily any better or worse than anybody else in that sense, except that it charges high fees for something that you don't need to pay high fees for. If you want to invest in the US, and I think you should, uh, I would absolutely use your current superannuation or even better, an industry super fund and use their direct investment or DIY or self-directed, whatever they call their version of that, and choose a mixed product or a straight ETF they can give you the same kind of things with a much, much lower cost. So I wouldn't <laughs> – the more they spend on marketing, generally the higher the price, the, the fees are. And unless – if you if you can't get something that approximates it and that's the only option, then probably, yeah, go for it. To your point, you know, we, we Doc and I both think that some of these US growth stocks are going to do really, really, really well over the long term. So I would absolutely encourage people to invest in those types of companies. I think the chance that a highly promoted, very slick, high-fee – uh, super product or, or general managed fund product is the best way to do it is probably not high. So I think you should go for a lower fee, lower cost option, probably within your own super or, or an industry super fund, as I said, to keep your fees low and probably in a way that um, delivers uh, that sort of return or those sort of companies for the lowest possible fee you can get. Because in the end, um, fees are a huge determinant of your future returns. 
particularly when you can get access to the same companies for a cheaper price. Doc, any thoughts on that? I think that sounds all good to me. But Tommy, great question, mate. And you're thinking the right way. Um, but as you, you rightly point out, the fees thing, higher fees, but <laughs> try and avoid the higher fees if you can. Take, take the but and leave the higher fees behind. All right, this one comes from Blake, Doc. He says, hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Would love to get a question answered on the pod. We can do that, can't we? Of course we can. Although I would love to see a bit of friendly competition between Scott and Doc and give their best short pitch for share advisor extreme opportunities. I've been very keen to get involved, but at this stage I've only got enough capital for one. Uh, We might do that. We'll see. I'll read the rest of the question first. If not, my question is as follows. With the current world moving toward more cashless digital society, would you be able to discuss your thoughts on the following equities and potentially which has a strong case? He mentions Visa, MasterCard or Square for a more retail or small business sector. Hopefully this gets through. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Blake. Blake, it did. And we've asked the question. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to not I'm not going to take it try and bag extreme opportunities or say that people should join SA mate. What I'm going to say instead is that it's important to understand what the services offer. If you're someone who is newer to investing and you kind of need a bit of slower and steadier wins the race, um, you like larger companies or you don't want to feel like your returns are potentially as volatile as they might be elsewhere, Share Advisor is a wonderful service for you. It's market beating. It's doing a great job over a very long period of time. I'm hugely biased. I run it. If, however, you're prepared to accept a bit of volatility because you're looking for big winners and you are going to, this is really, really important, you're going to follow Doc's rules and do it his way, then you should join Extreme Opportunities. They, those guys are looking for big, big, big multi-bagger winners, right? And when they come off, they can be sensationally profitable. Um, so if that's something that interests you, then EO can be a wonderful service for you. Again, we can't give personal or personalized advice, but to any listener, EO is a higher risk, higher volatility, lower strike rate investment service that probably will have great returns, I expect, over the long term. So depending on the sort of investor you are, and not the one you want to be, by the way, the one you actually are, if you can genuinely tolerate volatility, stay the course, do it Doc's way, buy a diversified scorecard, then extreme opportunities might be for you. Do you have anything more you want to add for either service, mate? Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. Thanks, Captain. (laughs) Nice, you're a good man. You're very kind. You're being very kind today, mate. I appreciate that. Um, Hopefully we get some disagreement later. All right, so how about the second part of the question, mate? I quite like this one. Um, With the current world moving, as he said, towards more cashless digital society, what about the investment merits of MasterCard, Visa or Square? Now, for those who don't necessarily know, Square is... I've, I've seen Square maybe a couple of times here. Um, it's a little payment kind of... What's called payment processor? It kind of... It's a it's an alternative on FPOS terminal, basically. You, you've got a little dongle that plugs into your iPhone or you can do a little thing on the on the desk that works with, I think, I assume Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or something. Um, it's an alternative payment method, so it's not quite an alternative to Visa MasterCard directly, but it operates in the same space. Do you have a thought on those three businesses, mate, or somewhere else in the cashless digital payments sphere? Okay. So uh, I own shares of MasterCard and and Square. Um, There you go. So so, so, so Square, I'll explain as, you know, the closest, uh, not quite similar, it's it's like Tyro here. So basically Tyro sells uh, FPOS terminals, Square sells FPOS terminals. So Square does a whole bunch of other things. It sells software. It also loans to, gives loans to uh, SMBs. Uh, it it does the whole suite of managing employees if you want, um, and and of course it has got uh, Square App, which 
is which is basically like peer to peer money transfer, uh, a bit like PayPal, for example, right? So there's a lot, lots of uh, you know fingers in different pieces. So they're not quite the same thing as the toll booth, like uh, Visa and Mastercard. They're a toll booth. Square is a toll booth at the payment end, whereas uh, uh, whereas Visa and Mastercard are the toll booth at the network that transfers money from one end to the other. Right. Um, so. Uh, I have no particular reason why I don't own shares of Visa. I just happen to buy MasterCard and and therefore figured that one is enough <laughs> to cover that okay. space. Um, <laughs> given that I own shares, I think that they're they're good investments to hold if you know for this sort of cashless uh, as we move more to sort of you know cashless and digital type of payments. Um, so, yeah, I I, I think. Um, I like all of them. You know, the, the one big risk factor I'll point out is um, in crypto. Uh, if crypto was to become sort of the main modus uh, mode for um, for transfer money, I don't see that happening. But if that happens, then there is a potential for disruption to these current models of uh, money transfer. And right. um, uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I think I th- I think of. Uh, Digital cashless, digital sort of as a, as a basket. Like I have a bunch of bunch of things that I own here, uh, okay. largely you know to spread because you know like Visa and Mastercard are strong globally, but there's only so much growth you're going to get there. <laughs> uh, the, um, then then the Square is strong in the U.S. Uh, you know there Australia, maybe Canada. Uh, there are other you know it doesn't give you exposure to emerging economies and things like that. So I mean you know if you want to do it you know things like you could spread out. But I think these are all. Great companies. I think uh, Mastercard is, is has has been an absolute uh, fantastic. Had a fantastic run. It's a pretty big company now. Um, Square is more volatile than a smaller company, relatively speaking. But are you are you so is the you own you own two of these three? Uh, is the trend itself what's driving you? Are you are you literally looking at this and saying we're using less cash? I want to buy these companies, or are you simply saying these companies are getting it done? In regardless, I mean, how are you framing up your investment thesis from that perspective? Yeah, so Mastercard, so Mastercard is a lot about the fact that there is this constant transaction, you know, a move of uh, transactions from you know cash mm. to cashless, right? Um, as more stuff moves online, it helps. So it's it's a little bit of that. You know, Mastercard, you know, when I bought it, and even now, you could figure it's it's basically like a. It's not the typical high growth investment that I, I look for. It's it's a very it's a steady business. You know, top line is growing at 10, 11, 12, 13 percent. Bottom line is growing faster than that because a lot of leverage in the business, operating leverage in the business, highly profitable. Um, you know, profit machine. It gushes gushes cash. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's you're riding tailwind, but it's not like it's super expensive or anything. You know, like it's. It's a classic blue chip growth type of story if you yeah, think right. about it that way, and if you, and if you think, think of the tailwinds behind it, Square is a little bit more than that. Square Square is riding. It's thinking about the you know the mom and pop stores and small businesses, medium medium scale enterprises. They're moving upstream to take you know going digital, looking to use more software to manage their businesses, uh, getting better at doing things instead of doing you know paper and pen or spreadsheets and things like that. You know what I mean? So so Square is is that angle, uh, and and of course the peer to peer payment transfer. And again, there's a lot of competition there, but I mean it's it's one of those things where you, know, you can't get bogged down by competition because you know you know this is. It's a massive, massive trillions. Of, I mean, if you think of the world economy, like trillions and trillions of dollars are moved, uh, are moving. Um, so, I mean, you know, you even a small cut of that. So, and 
and I quite like the management of uh, you know Square. Quite like the management of uh, uh, Mastercard. So you know those sort of things again. Profitable companies. Uh, Square Square is growing faster um, than Mastercard, of course. Fascinating. I don't know any of those stocks. I have to say, Visa has been on my list of kind of interesting stocks for a long time. I never got around to doing it. Um, I, I don't know. I add a lot of money to my US account, as it, as it turns out. I don't have much cash in there, and most of it's, or it's all of it's invested. So I don't sell much either. So it's kind of just sitting there doing its thing. Uh, but Visa is certainly one of those. If I was going to pick, I'm sure there's a five or six. Not, not by the way, instead of Mastercard or Square either, by the way. But, but between the three of us, between the two of us, sorry, we've covered all three companies. Um, so I, I like that. I like that idea. I, I do. I do like the the move away from. Cash. I got to say, I don't have a strong view about who wins this race. Even if is there one winner, two winners, five winners? Um, you mentioned Bitcoin, Doc. There's the Apple, Google Pays of the world. Um, there's you know uh, plenty of other alternative email payments here in Australia. Of course, a different way again. A lot of those use some of these networks. A lot of the, some of them will go around their networks at some point. Square again, as you mentioned. So uh, and then of course there's Afterpay and all that sort of stuff. So there's lots and lots of non-cash payment solutions and options. Uh, but certainly, I, I think you'd go a long way. You go a long way to find better alternative investments for that kind of, as you say, kind of maturing growth segments. Uh, those two big guys in the square, certainly a really impressive, cool little company run by the uh, the CEO of Twitter, actually, Jack Dorsey. So interesting kind of uh, crossover there. Not that necessarily there needs to be a crossover, but a guy who's built two successful businesses and, and doing pretty well doing it. Any more for that? No, that's it. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Hey, question from Mark, Doc. Um, he says, hi, Scott. I don't know if this is a good one for the mailbag, so feel free not to use it. Well, I did feel free, Mark, but I'm going to use it anyway. Here it is. Hi, Scott and Doc. Being in France and overseas for the last 13 years, thanks for rubbing it in, Mark, I rely on your podcast to keep me up to date with stuff at home and I enjoy them immensely. And your answers to my many dopey questions. Well, I don't think I'm dopey, Mark. Today's question might be something you don't wish for the podcast, and I'll understand if you don't use it. Mate, we're up for anything, so we're going to have a go at this one. Here's his question. Should politics influence my investment decisions? You guys are very careful to be balanced with your political viewpoints, even in Scott's rants. He says, which I love. I promise he actually wrote that. But some commentators and fund managers are quite biased. He says, I have exposure to the US markets in ETFs and Aussie growth shares, which are doing well overseas. But could the US elections in November cause a seismic shift in the market? Should investors cash out before a close election? Or should we assume good companies are impervious to political wins? Does our natural bias mean we make incorrect decisions? That's from Mark. He says, hashtag croissants, hashtag baguettes, hashtag, I think it's Von Rouge, <laughs> if I'm pronouncing that correctly, red wine, in other words. I'll tell you what, Mark, I, mate, you don't even deserve that. If you're there with bloody croissants, baguettes, and red wine, I reckon you're doing well enough already. You don't need our help, just quietly. Uh, but we will anyway, Doc, because we're nice blokes. What do you reckon, mate? How much should your view of politics, and maybe this can be either party politics or simply kind of political expectations, Factor into the way you invest, what you buy, what you sell, what you hold. That's a that's a tough one. You, you know, like politics does have an impact on on growth, right? So it does absolutely impact has impact on growth. Also, politics has, you know, you, you know, from the like if you think of the U.S. markets, politics does have an impact on, for example, um, antitrust policies, right? And antitrust policies can have an impact mm. on investments. Now, if antitrust policies basically require companies to be broken down, that actually can cause value creation uh, for shareholders because, uh, you know, <laughs> some of parts might be actually greater than the, the sum of the whole. Uh, but they could also, you know, antitrust could also, you know, significantly weaken companies. So I think they're important. Um, 
do I pay attention too much to politics? I actually don't pay that much attention to politics, largely because I think, um, with reference to the U.S. companies, I think you know the companies themselves are. Uh, you know, I think that if if you think if you think of the innovation that the companies are doing, um, society as a whole, whole would be worse off if these companies were not doing the innovation. So I know you know there's a debate about taxing them and this and that, but um, I, I think um, it, it, it is absolutely in um, in our advantage that uh, the companies continue doing what they're doing. So I'm not, uh, yeah. So I mean, I. Don't pay that much attention to what's going on in politics, uh, especially if it's not that significantly important in sort of the technology high growth sectors. Um, political decisions can have an impact on, on you know, infrastructure spend and things like that. And companies that are directly exposed to infrastructure can have impact on tourism. It can have impact on net migration, and that can have impact on other things. So a lot of capital heavy businesses, I think, can be impacted. So, but I don't invest in those, you know. But you know, things like you know CSL, for example, I mean, people will need vaccines, people will need blood products, people will need innovations. You know, we're better off for those innovations, right? So, I mean, what is the government policy really going to do? Stifle that doesn't make sense, um, right? I mean, same thing. You know, he he pointed out some other companies like you know Megaport and so on. I mean, you some of the stuff you need, you just you know you're better off with them. Um, so, I don't pay too much attention to. I largely tune out actually the, the politics, you know, because you know, <laughs> it, it can get very ranty, and you know people have different views, and you know people's yeah. yeah so, um, I, I guess I'll add one one quick thing. The only thing I think that matters, and this is, is I think this is a problem. Why? Um, the. In emerging economies, I think the political decisions matter a lot because that has a direct impact on job creation, and job creation has a direct impact mm. on growth. Mm. And I think in, if you're making emerging market decisions, then I think it matters a lot more. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I like it. I um. So look, I have a, I have a, I have a difficult one with this. So first thing I would say, Mark, is that you've got to be right. <laughs> so your own view's got to be right. And then your expectations have to be right. And then your expectations of the results of those expectations have to be right. So let me, let me break it down for you. Um, during, the, uh, during the Obama years, uh, he was kind of pro-renewable energy, right? And so solar was supposed to be the big thing. It was going to solve, the, solve everyone's problems uh, and make a fortune. And of course, during that period, a whole lot of solar companies went broke or lost a lot of value. Um, there's a very, 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 very small correlation between party presidencies in the US in particular and the stock market, for example. And so it's kind of, you got. I think it's really important to break down I think the, the biases, as you say, my, my biggest concern would be for people to not let those biases, which again, A, might be wrong, or B, even if they're right, you might not get the result you expect, which is if you'd said, for example, I like Obama, I like clean energy, I'm glad he's doing something about it, and so when he's elected, I'm going to buy solar companies because I'm going to make a fortune. That was just fundamentally absolutely wrong. <laughs> so that was that was problematic, right? I think that's that's really important to make sure that you that you kind of get that get that bit right. The more you try and think about it, the more number of variables you add to an investment case, the harder it is to be right because each one of them can blow you up. Um, for, again, to use the opposite example, Donald Trump was supposed to be a disaster for markets. When he was elected, the market fell four percent, I think, in a matter of hours. The day after, it actually regained all of that plus more, and the market went on to a huge rally over the following six months. 
And so even then, again, whether you like Trump or you didn't, whether you thought he'd be terrible or, or great, um, you know, the market response can always be very different to what you expect. So just be careful about that. I think when we rant, when I rant about stuff, I tend to rant about policy, not politics. I try and separate those two out. I'll give you an example on a personal level. It's not quite politics directly. I'm on record as saying I think ethical investing is misguided at best and harmful at worst, and yet I own shares in Australian ethical investments. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's a situation where I can happily have two of those thoughts in my head at the same time because I fundamentally don't think people are going to listen to me in large numbers, unfortunately, at least not until I'm Prime Minister and, and Dictator-in-Chief. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a terrible idea generally and I would encourage people not to invest just on ethical grounds, particularly on the basis they expect that to be successful and I've ranted about that before so I'm not going to do it again here. But at the same time, as I said... I actually still think Australian Ethical will get a lot of new funds invested in its business because people want to believe it'll help. And again, so you know, my personal belief is entirely different to my investing decision. Uh, does that make me hypocritical? Probably, yeah. But there's no, there's no, there's nothing to say you can't be hypocritical with your investing. Um, I, I like to think, hopefully, it keeps me more clear-eyed. Quite frankly, if I can hold both those views at the same time. I hope that makes me more clear-eyed and less likely to be biased about that stuff. But again, maybe I'm deluding myself. So, you know, my, my personal politics, my personal policy views, my personal investing views are different to what may happen in the marketplace. And I would, I would just encourage you where you can to separate the two out. Any thoughts on that, Doc? No, I think you covered it nicely. I'm just going to cover just the, the very last the very last point Mark makes just about, you know, should he sell out before an election? Again, uh, you know, the, 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 the Trump election showed that people who did lost an absolute squillion, even though they thought they were right for the first six or eight hours. Um, uh, you know, how the market might respond to a Biden election or a Trump election in the short term. Again, like this thing, right? So if you're selling out in the short term, you're selling it because of sentiment, not because of actual value. The the chance that those businesses do go on, I think to your last point or second last point, should we assume good companies are impervious to political wins? Nothing's impervious. Um, I think you're off, I think given the probabilities, you're better off investing in the best companies you can find and occasionally one might get hurt by a political decision, but you're going to do better off overall as a group doing that than trying to set your portfolio up for some some perceived political impact or change. And uh, Mark, send us the croissants, will you? Come on. Man, man can't live on bread alone. A bit of, bit of French would be helpful. Thank you, mate. All right. Question from Tim Doc. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. First time writer, long time reader, subscriber and listener. Thanks for your guidance on, so far on my investment journey. The Fool keep, Fool's Investment Thesis constantly keeps me on track with a long-term mindset. Good stuff, Tim. We hope to do that for a very long time to come. I have a theoretical question regarding intrinsic value calculations. This is one for you, Doc. And the discount <laughs> rates within. So here, here's, here's the setup. Old mate Warren, he says, old mate Warren, obviously Tim's mate, old mate Warren has said that in theory, he would always use the same discount rates when valuing companies. He says in brackets, say 10%. I don't think Buffett would say his number was 10%, so just to be clear, but Tim's saying, say, let's just same rate, say 10%. Enabling him to get a better sense of the opportunity cost versus another investment option. This makes sense to me as a simplification because if I feel I can get 10% in index, why would I change my discount rate and therefore my barrier to entry into an investment just because one company has low debt or something or because the risk-free rate is low? He says, this contrasts more traditional theoretical concepts of WAC or the Weighted Average Cost of Capital, WACC, where if the company has a lot of cheap debt, the discount rate may be lower than if they were debt-free, raising the intrinsic value, i.e. a lower portion of the cash flow to cover debt. Old mate Hamish Douglas is on about the St. Petersburg paradox all the time, which surely highlights a theoretical limitation to DCF models, as after all, no company's worth an infinite amount. Are they? Okay, he says, my questions are, 
One, do you think it's appropriate in theory to use a consistent discount rate or one weighted to the funding structure of a business? Two, do you think the St. Petersburg paradox is playing a part in the market currently trading above long-term average PEs? If so, have you reached a new valuation normal where an old PE of 20 may be the same as a new PE of 30? Sorry if I got a bit technical, a bit. I really appreciate if you guys could dive deep into this concept. Full on, Tim. Tim, that's a really cool question. So lots of terms there for us to unpack, Doc. Um, so let me, let me try and set it up. The discount rate is effectively best thought of as the return you want from an investment. Now, there are different ways that the number is used, but effectively what it's saying is, if I'm going to get some money in a year's time, I want that money to be worth more than the money now. If, I, if you give me a dollar now or a dollar in a year's time, I'm going to say, well, I'll take the dollar now, thanks very much. Why would I wait if I can have it now? If you say, well, I'll give you a dollar now or a dollar 10 in a year's time, then I start to think, well, that might be worth my while. My discount rate, my expected return, my required return of 10%, yeah, I'll wait for that. What about 4%? No, no, I'll have it now. And, and so you kind of find a point at which the return you want from an investment is high enough to make it worth you putting your money aside rather than spending it now. So that's it, that's a, a rough approximation of what a discount rate is and how it works. And it basically means that you can use, when you're doing a discounted cash flow, all those wonderful future earnings, all those profits from here to eternity, and you basically reduce those by the rate you want. So in other words, you know, a dollar of earnings in the future is worth 90 cents now because I've got to wait for it. Uh, and so on and so forth. When I add those up, that's how I get to a value of my shares. At least that's the that's the value investing maths that goes behind it. So let's let's ask the question, Doc. Is it appropriate to use a consistent discount rate, so the same rate for everyone, or do you think we should change it based on the company in question? Um, so if you're going to if you're inclined to build a DCF model, I would say that you would use a different discount rate for different companies, largely because again the risk profile too of different companies are different, and you'd capture that. Um, I guess via your discount rate. I mean, unless you want to, I mean, there, there, there are many ways to skin the cat. You could use a consistent discount rate and then ask for a, and you come up with a fair value, and then you can ask for a, of, of a significant, a larger discount relative to the fair value to buy a company. So right, you might buy, right. you might buy a company ten percent. You know, apply a further ten percent discount on the fair value uh, if it is riskier versus maybe you don't apply a discount if it you know, you think it's not that risky. Uh, I mean, as an example. So yeah, I mean, yeah, many ways to skin the cat. Uh, but if you're going to apply the discount later for risk, then mm. or different risk, you can, uh, or um, you could just use a you know a different discount rate. I mean, those are two ways of doing it are too possible among the many other possible ways of doing it. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'll give my thoughts on that, Tim, and then I'll ask the second question. Um, I, I So here's, I'm, I'm happily led by smarter people than me. Uh, that includes Doc, but it also includes Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger was asked uh, about the weighted average cost of capital. And I think he was asked directly, you know, do you know Berkshire's weighted average cost of capital? He said, no, I've never bothered trying to calculate it. And he said, our only job is to try and turn a dollar of value now into more than a dollar in future. And I think, honestly, I, I, I started my investing journey trying to calculate everything. I, I had 60 different ratios on a spreadsheet I built literally hand by, line by line. I got the Woolworths annual reports and I typed in five years of history and then I worked out the cash conversion cycle and the interest cover and the quick ratio and the current ratio and sales growth and margin growth and all sorts of fun stuff. I, you know, Days inventory, days out, sales outstanding. I did all this stuff. I knew all the numbers. 
Turned out I knew the as they say the price of everything, the value of nothing. It didn't actually help me because I knew all the I knew all the ratios, and then I had to try and work out what to do with it. Which ones were important? Which ones weren't? Which ones are more valuable? Which ones weren't? I never ever 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 changed my WAC or, or transfer discount rate to include the WAC, the weighted average cost of capital. I don't care. I don't think it's very useful. Um, I think it's crazy, actually, quite frankly. Um, to Doc's point, there are different risk factors per company, but that's the other thing, right? You've got to be so careful with DCFs to not over either over aggressively or over conservatively use it. Some people say, well, I'll make the I'll make my discount rate high. I'll make it 14% because it's risky. And then they'll say, and I'll, okay, I think the business can go at 15%, but let's make it 12% just to be conservative. And they'll say, and I want a 40% discount to my to my discounted cash flow for the margin of safety. By the time you've done that, you, re- you realize that you want to pay $1.50 for Woolies shares and $2 for Amazon and you know $3.50 for Berkshire and you know $4 for Apple. At some point, you're like, it's just not very useful. It's not very helpful because you don't get a number um, that, that makes even close to reasonable sense. Of course, we'd all buy Apple at $4 a share. It's just never going to be there. And if your DCF says, I'm not going to pay more than four bucks, you'd never buy anything. And so there is a, I'm not saying people should lighten their standards. I'm just saying, as Doc's already pointed out, be careful how you apply those margins of safety, those risk factors, those conservative assumptions. Uh, by all means, if you, if, you know, if you think Apple's worth four and it falls to four, then you know, buy it with your, with your ears pin back. But the chance you actually get reasonable investment opportunities for that is is tough. The problem is, here's the thing, right? Let's say, and Buffett's used this example. I've used it before, talking about Walmart in a different way. He's, you know, he he tried to get a two cent cheaper price on Walmart shares. He missed the opportunity. He didn't buy the shares, and he lost eight billion dollars in foregone profit. Right. So sometimes the bigger issue is not paying too much. It's actually not paying enough and missing the opportunity for growth. If you if you're offered you know Amazon shares at nine bucks and you didn't buy them because you wanted them for eight, and the shares are now two and a half thousand dollars, you've done a pretty good job of missing out on a, on a huge huge return. So just be careful to not die in the ditch on being super conservative across the board. And no, I, I've never ever used a different whack. I know some people do. I don't think it's very useful. It's mathematically correct, but then mathematically markets are efficient too. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge I want to sell you. So I don't I don't do that. Now, Dr. St. Petersburg paradox is one I'm not going to go into huge amounts of detail with here. Effectively, the, 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 the challenge here is when DCFs start to break down, when your rate of return is greater than your growth rate. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's greater than the discount rate because then you, you can literally, the mass never come back. You know, in theory, you're discounting growth by something and so you're reducing the future value of, of an asset. If you believe it's going to grow faster than the discount rate you require then the maths actually blows out. You can never pay You can never pay too much for a stock because it's, you know, it's always going to grow faster than the discount rate you're being offered. And so the, the kind of the two lines just diverge the further out you go. Rather than coming back to, to something, they get, they get further and further and further apart. And Hamish Douglas has made that point that it's such cheap cost of funding right now that discount rate should come down because the risk-free rate is lower. And again, we're probably losing some people here, but effectively the, your, your rate of return, your discount rate should be the bond rate plus some sort of risk premium, when the bond rate's almost zero anyway, it's sometimes hard enough, hard to find a high enough discount rate to pay, right? You can discount shares at three, four, five, six percent rather than the usual 10, 11%. And most things can grow faster than that. So there's never, you couldn't pay, you couldn't pay any price that was too expensive for a big growth company, which is clearly mathematically stupid, but that's kind of the problem with the, the traditional model as it breaks down. So without going to, I mean, feel free to go into that if you want to, but I'd rather ask you about the new valuation normal that Tim asks. If rates are permanently lower, and in the old days, the market average PE was say 14 or 15 times, doesn't it make some logical sense that 20 times might actually be a new normal average PE? And so we're missing a whole lot of opportunities because we're trying to get things too cheap in a, in a world where we can afford to pay more because the cost of money is so cheap? Yeah, so to, on, 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 uh, on Hamish's point, actually, I agree with Hamish's point. With, I'll just add one caveat there. Mm. So the caveat is, you know, like you, you discount, you're discounting the rate right now. 
Mm. I, I think the issue might be that with the terminal terminal value. So towards you know, if you're looking, you think of a company. We are basically saying, well, we're going to model ten years, and then we are going to model the remainder of the life of the company, which is you know captured in terminal value. But think of that as you know year number eleven to say year number forty, right? Which is supposed to be business as usual, right? By the time the growth's finished, we're going to just apply some sort of steady state to the rest of its life. Yeah, but I think the, the yeah. So you, you, the businesses as usual part that's number one. But there's also the the discounting of that part, right? I think the if the inherent assumption is that the discount rate is going to stay the same even for that part, I think that is a bit inaccurate, right? So I mean, there is that correction that one can account for. That's that's, that's number one. Number two is like I mean, it is true. You know, most growth companies are probably undervalued. Well, at some point in time, they must have been undervalued. Uh, otherwise, people would not have made phenomenal returns yeah. on things like Amazon, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, the fact that a company can actually compound at 20, 30 mm. percent for you know, better part of like in you know, a decade and a half or two decades yeah. is, 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 you know, the, that sort of compounding is hard to think about. And uh, so I think the lower the rates go, the cheaper it becomes to borrow money, the, the stronger the best companies become and the weaker the average companies become. Because the cheap money can be used by the best in the world to do wonderful things, and the average would still be average because they would not know what to do. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, um, I had a colleague who once says that A tier always hires an A plus tier, but the B always mm-hmm. hires a C and a D, and therefore yep. they kill themselves. Um, so I think that's the problem. So, um, so I think it only it creates this gap between the good and the average and the mm. kind of the bad that's uh, the um to the answer about the new normal, I think, I mean, it doesn't, you know, like people talk about, uh, you know, historic PE, PE ratios and how it's higher, lower, whatever. Well, I mean, you need a lot of context behind that, right? I mean, the PE ratio, average PE ratio was uh, 18 when the interest rates were 5%, yeah. right? And, and jobless rate was 5%. Uh, and you know, growth rate was X, and and things like that, right? So, and GDPs were this, and you know, people were living only for like you know, seventy years instead of ninety, and people were less productive and things like that, right? So, mm, I, I think you need to just account for the, and and therefore it becomes hard, right? And an average is an average because it it does not capture all the other nuances that impacted that average. Um, you know, I would like to see somebody do a factorial analysis that says, you know, well, these were the main key 10 factors, and then there's a factor 11 that captures everything else, and I'm going to tell you how much each contributed to the average PE that we saw in the past, um, if there's a good way of doing that. So, I mean, you know, the averages don't, uh, don't mean, I think you would expect the PE ratios to be higher given that the interest rates are lower. I think that's uh, that's a given. How yep. much higher? Yep. Again, it depends on the company. Um, we shouldn't be really comparing with the past and saying it's expensive because the ratios were this in the past um, that is just another form of anchoring right I mean you just you know like people anchor to prices you're anchoring to a ratio um, yeah so I think I, I think uh, I think I agree with most of that fascinating mate I'm actually gonna I actually take a slightly different view actually on you on I agree with everything except the last part um, I think to some degree as long as the earnings that we were comparing the price to I take into account those societal changes I think 
I, I personally think the P the P is more comparable or should be more comparable, and so changes in rates should matter more maybe than your. I think that I think you're you're saying. Um, I would happily. So the rest I completely agree with. As I said, I would I would absolutely think there should be a new normal. In fact, Buffett has said effectively words. To the, well, I think it's almost an exact quote. Um, if interest rates stay low, then stocks are very cheap. And and that's that's exactly to Tim's question the the new normal he's perceiving, which is you know if if rates stay at this level for a very very long time, then the discount rate has to come down by definition. If it comes down from ten to five or to six or something else, then the math has to flow through. If you believe DCFs are right in in their approach, even even conceptually, not not literally each DCF for each company, but if you believe the fundamental basis for valuing a business is that you get the risk free rate plus something for taking that risk, um, then the share price should go up and the average returns, by the way, actually should come down from that point forward as a result where Buffett will be, not necessarily wrong, but what his, his point is the if word, <laughs> if they stay low um, versus if rates start to go back up over time. And you kind of mentioned that with your, your talk about the terminal rate, Doc, that out, you know, trying to imagine that rates may be at these effectively historic lows for decades is a tough thing to ask. And so the question for investors is what do you do about that? I, I'm going to go back to one of Tim's points actually, which is to me, I use valuation techniques in part to get a rough estimate because I can only ever be rough, but secondly, also to get a sense of a, you know, a relative attractiveness across the market of companies. So, you know, if I if I if I honestly did a DCF for every company right now and realised none of them were cheap enough to buy, and yet the market goes on to gain ten percent this year or. or you know, ten percent a year for the next five years. Clearly, my, my entire process was wrong, and the risk of that is that you never buy anything, because as I said before, with the, the being over conservative, you always take the conservative option, conservative option, conservative. You never buy anything, don't buy anything, don't buy anything. You spend ten years not buying anything. All of a sudden, you miss out on a triple, and you then are, are miles behind the eight and never make it back. And so, for me, to some degree, I'm always looking for relative attractiveness rather than absolute attractiveness. Of course, if I find absolute attractiveness, I'll go with it as the you know, as the number one idea. Uh, but it really, for me, is just a tool to prioritize my best ideas with some rough, loose valuation technique. Um, I'm not a DCF kind of guy. I haven't done one in ages. And when I do, I normally do them in reverse to work out what the market's expecting rather than how much I should absolutely pay because I think they're not very useful for that, honestly. Um, unless you've got a business that we've said before, like a, a toll road or a, you know something that has a really predictable cash flow, in which case DCFs are almost perfect because you can literally plug you know relatively absolute numbers in. But as you say, mate, if if people got Amazon right from a DCF perspective from the start, shares would have sold for 1500 bucks you know, in 2005, <laughs> right? And said they're, that, you know, they've been cheap as chips for a very, very long time because people didn't believe or didn't allow themselves to assume that the sort of growth it was delivering would continue for such a long time. Any more from that? No. Really good question, Tim. I like it. Hey, we've got a question from Ian, Doc. And this, uh, he just sent, sent us a picture, but he put some comments about it. He says, hello, long-time listener, young person, 20 to 30s in this current climate, what would you do with your super options? Not looking for advice, just an educated outlook on it all. And he just puts in a screenshot from his superannuation uh, website or, or app. And down the left-hand side, it's got investment option, high growth, growth, conservative growth, conservative cash savings, and there's zeros in all those boxes. It has to add up to 100%. So he's looking to allocate his super across those options of high growth, growth, conservative growth, conservative, and cash. And he's saying, hey, I remember 20s and 30s, what should a young person do in that environment? We answered a similar question last week, mate, but it's a really nice opportunity. I just like the the, the, the picture of kind of, it's a really stark reminder. Sometimes we talk a lot about, you know, uh, in, in kind of, uh, um, uh, what's the word? When you, abstract terms is what I'm looking for. 
this one's a very simple one. He's got to fill out a, fill out a form. And he's saying, what, what should I put in which box? So we can't give him advice. Obviously, Doc, we say this every time. We can't give personal advice. But for someone in their 20s and 30s, how would you think about splitting up that allocation? Yeah, like so, so I'm going to caveat my answer by saying that, you know, without knowing exactly what high growth contains or is made up of and without knowing what growth uh, contains and conservative growth, like, I mean, these terms itself sound like a bit of an oxymoron. What is a conservative <laughs> growth? Like, yeah, I mean, growth, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like conservative growth. Uh, uh, not good bad (laughs) you know it's like that Um, so uh, without knowing that it's hard to say like I can generally answer this question if somebody has got a you know again without knowing personal circumstances really hard so if somebody's got you know somebody's in their between 20s and 30s they've got you know and assuming everything else is all right for them then they've got probably Mm. uh, you know they're looking you know today somebody who's you know 25 is probably looking to live maybe until like 100 well they've got a lot (laughs) they have a long investing horizon I've I'd basically be growth focused in that case. Um, you know, you, you're looking at 75 years um, and potentially maybe a minimum of 50 years before, or maybe at least 45 years before you're even thinking of touching um, uh, funds like that. Uh, so, yeah, like I would just say growth. But again, it depends on what the growth has. Like, I mean, if, you know, if it's all speculative assets or, you know, illiquid assets, I don't know what, you know, hmm. is there in this option. So. Yeah, fair, fair. I like that. Um, yeah, look, I completely agree, actually. Ian, so here's the thing. I'll, I'll only add a doc's thought just with our usual one, which is understanding yourself, right? So I, I know people, including relatives and friends, who will say to me, my super lost money this year. I didn't think super was supposed to lose money. And uh, I'll say, well, that's because, you know, depending on what your investment options are, and depending on, you know, if you're in the stock market, we know the stock market loses money. Is it one year in three, I think, doc, on average? Um, so if you're in high growth, high growth is normally going to be largely... Australian shares, international shares, a little bit of property, not much cash. Generally speaking, and again, we can't we can't be specific because each individual super fund does it differently. But if that's the case, the one year out of three, you should expect to lose money. And so you kind of you know at some level, if you can't stomach that, and you know, I don't know about you particularly, I'm happy either way. Um, but you know, generally speaking, if if you can stand, stomach the volatility on the path to long term compound returns, I completely agree with Doc. And for anyone listening. I completely agree with Doc. If you if you have enough time, as Doc says, your last dollar hopefully will come out of super at 95. That's a very, very, very long time to be compounding. And that's, I mean, it's, I, I can't, unless you kind of get it, um, it's very, very hard to, to strongly enough explain how bloody huge that is. If you've got another 65 years ahead of you, if you earn 7% a year, sorry, 10% a year average, you'll double your money every seven years, right? That, so 90, 63 in a nine, seven times or 7%, sorry. Um, so you're going to double your money nine times between now and six and, and you know ninety five. Now you'll take some out, of course you will, and there's other stuff. That, but just just think about that. Right? Nine times. Do it with me. You start with ten grand. The first time it doubles is twenty, then forty, then eighty, then one hundred and sixty grand. The fifth time it's three hundred and twenty grand. Right? Impressive. Let's keep going. The sixth time it's six hundred and forty thousand dollars. The seventh time one point two eight million dollars. The eighth time two point five six million dollars. The ninth time. $5.12 million. <laughs> so, you know, and look, let's say it's not that. Let's say it's half that. Let's say it's two and a half. Well, you still, you still got two and a half million bucks. The longer you can compound, the better. Now, some years will be terrible, but I'll tell you what, if I said to you, you've got to have a down year every three years if you want to retire with three million bucks, I think most people should take that deal. Any more on that, Doc? No. Well, I reckon that probably does us, Doc. What do you reckon? Are we done? I think we are done. All right. Well, in that case... Don't forget, 
you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or as we've said in the last couple of weeks, the new Podcast One app. Well, I guess the Podcast One app isn't new, Doc, but we're new on it. So if you haven't already, feel free to use that as your podcast app of choice. And of course, if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on Podcast One or iTunes or anywhere else you can find a place to give us a rating. Just no graffiti, no toilet doors, please. And also, please do tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. All you have to do is go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. And you can get an ad for Dividend Investor too. You can join Motley Fool Dividend Investor, the service we don't talk about enough on this podcast, but you can join up there as well. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Tuesday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.